You guys got one more in you? Are you sure? Are you sure? See, they're, they're really smart here because they don't do a session after lunch. That's always the one you don't want. So, um, man, we started off uh, last night talking about vision and the need that we have for vision as men, the calling that God has put on our lives to walk in, in the authority of the vision that we, that we get from God. And I just feel like these last two sessions have been such practical uh, tools and encouragements for us about really what that vision looks like. Don't you guys agree? Tonic masculinity. That was powerful. That was so, so good. So thank you, Nate, for, for that vision of manhood in our day. And, and Matt, where'd Matt go? Thank you for the, uh, the vision of what it looks like to be all in, these, these sort of viruses that creep into the body of Christ and, and the antidotes that we have um, given to us by the Lord. Such, such great stuff. I want to thank uh, Nate and Matt. And, and really, can we take just a second to, to thank the whole team that's been serving us this weekend? Yeah. Yeah. These are, these are long weekends for church guys because then they, they got to go home real quick and come back on Sunday. You know, it just, it's, it's good. And I'm so glad that you guys are here taking the time investing extra, but thanks for the guys that are running the sound and the slides and the games and leading us in worship and all of this. It's been so good. And really, I just want to pick up um, where Matt left off because he was talking about, you know, the way that discouragement can so easily settle in and how the antidote for that is the, the communal language of Hebrews chapter 10, let us uh, stir one another up to love and good works. Let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And so I want to talk to you uh, in this last session about real masculine friendship. I want to talk to you about true brotherhood. And it's interesting because there's always these studies that come out that the world's doing that are, are this big, huge investment and investigation that brings you full circle to what the Bible's been saying all along. Don't you love that? So, so I read about this study, the longest in-depth longitudinal study on human life that's ever been done. Now, I don't know exactly what a longitudinal study is, but it sounds, sounds pretty sophisticated. So um, this is the study that, that was setting out to, to find out what makes people flourish. And this study, get this, it started in 1938 and has been going on ever since. It's called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. And they started with 724 participants who were a mixture of boys from troubled families in Boston... That was part of the sample. And the other sampling was undergraduate students at Harvard. So we could say probably privileged people, right? And so they took these 724 participants and they would just survey them on a regular basis. You know, questions about their life, what's going well, how's things going? Well, the study went on. Eventually, they kept following these 724 participants to where they began to survey their spouses because they were all men initially. And then they were surveying their spouses, and then they began to survey over 1,300 of their descendants 
through the years. So this is a this is a huge sample size and study. And guess what? After all this investment, after all this investigation, guess what simple, profound conclusion they figured out? Here's what makes people flourish. Good relationships. <laughs> Good relationships lead to health and happiness. It sounds so simple, but I think maybe you're like me and you look around, and especially just with men, why are so many of us living lives of quiet desperation? Why is it that so many of us struggle with loneliness? Why is it that men seem to be uh, or seem to find friendship so difficult, and, and maybe, don't raise your hands, but maybe you're discovering like I am, the older that I get, it seems harder and harder to make friends. Man, when you're in grade school and on the sports team all the way through college, you have all these sort of automatic connections. Even, you know, in, in the early family life, your kids are on the little team, little league team or, or, you know, gymnastics or whatever, and you're around these families and you're kind of in the same orbit, but as your kids get older and they kind of get their own life, it's like it's harder and harder to make friends and find meaningful connections. Maybe that's because through the years we get hurt. Maybe we put walls up. Maybe because we invested in friendships that we thought were something that they didn't end up to be. But I can tell you this from personal experience. As a man, friendship can be a, a real struggle, meaningful friendship. And so that's why I want to talk to you about true brotherhood this morning. I want to I want to set the stage with the story of Jonathan. So if you want to open in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 18, that's the first passage that we're going to read. But before we read this, I want to tell the story of Jonathan's background because maybe you remember Jonathan is the son of the first king of Israel. So he's he's the successor to the crown. Saul is currently reigning in Israel, but things are not going well. Israel's facing desperate days. They're, they're being dominated militarily by the Philistines. Their heads are down. Their backs are bent. It says in this time that the blacksmiths in Israel were all out of business. What's the significance of that? Well, they were so dominated by the Philistines that the Philistines outlawed blacksmiths because they didn't want them making any weapons. And so they're, they're just under this oppressive, demoralizing, depressed time in Israel's history until 1 Samuel 14. We're not going to read that part, but just so you know where it's at. Jonathan, the son of King Saul, steps forward in the most amazing way. Do you know the story? He's sitting there and all the troops are kind of hiding out and all the men are hiding out. And, and Jonathan just kind of looks at his armor bearer and he's like, what are we doing, man? Let's, let's go see what the Lord will do. And so they knew there was this garrison of Philistines kind of right over the way. And they're like, let's go take these guys on. And, and you know, this is kind of nuts. So we'll get over there. And they're up on this rock. And so if they say, hey, come up here, we'll know that God's on our side. And we'll go take them out. And if they say, hey, wait down there. We're coming after you. Let's get out of here. Because that'll be the signal that God's not with us. I love that because 
Man, there's no guarantee, right? How risky is that? I think so often, guys like us, we, we want a guarantee from God before we do something risky. We need, we need a prophetic word or a promise from God that this will not fail. And though God gives us many promises, and though I believe there are words of prophecy, more often than not, when we're stepping out in faith, there's a real risk. We don't have a guarantee. So Jonathan steps out with his armor bearer. If you know the story, the Philistines say, hey, why don't you come up here? We'll take you guys on. Two guys go up, and before the dust settles, 20 Philistines are laying in the ground dead, and the rest are running away from their lives. So Jonathan wins this great victory. And, and, and I know that story for some of us might be familiar, but just kind of slow down and kind of try to envision it in real life. You know, I want to sign up for that tug of war because that rope was so skinny. I'm like, someone's fingers are going to get sliced off by this thing. That, that looks nuts. That was nothing compared to what Jonathan and his armor bearer experienced. I mean, there was real blood on the ground. There were real dead bodies laying around. This was real life and death, hand-to-hand combat, and they saw God win a great victory, which lit a spark in the hearts of the men of Israel for a moment. For a moment... Israel experiences, because of Jonathan's victory, this little, this little lifting of their hopes, a little bit more freedom and a little bit more dignity. But by the time you get to 1 Samuel chapter 17, things are right back, if not worse, to where they were before. Because you remember, there's not one man in all of Israel who's willing to face the Philistine champion named Goliath. Now, here's what's interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. Not even Jonathan. Where's he at? He was willing to take risks and, and, and win victories before, but, but he's not there. And we don't know why. The, the Bible doesn't say there could be all kinds of reasons. We're left to speculate, but I wonder... I wonder if at least part of the reason for Jonathan was... He just felt alone. He'd stepped out before, but how many more times could he step forward if no one else was willing to step with him? Before he had his armor bearer, but to go alone before the Philistine champion and to see just the demoralized state of the troops in Israel, man, it must have been so discouraging and and so disheartening. And so while Jonathan might have felt alone, here's the good news. God had not run out of men to send. So you know the story. David, the shepherd boy, one of the most unlikely characters in the story, shows up to bring his brothers some supplies sent on an errand by his dad. And he's looking around going, why are you guys letting this guy talk like that? Why are you letting... This Philistine, uncircumcised guy named Goliath defy the God of Israel. And so, you know the story. David steps forward. He wins this great victory. And I want to pick up the story here in in 1 Samuel 17, verse 55. 
And you have to just picture it. David's just taken down Goliath. Everything's riding on the line, right? Because the agreement, the arrangement is send out your champions. And if our guy wins, you guys will serve us. You'll be our slaves. If your guy wins, we'll serve you and be your slaves. And so Goliath is this formidable foe. But David, the shepherd boy, takes him down by nailing him in the head with a stone. (laughs) And then he cuts off the head of Goliath the Philistine champion. And this is where we pick up the story because David's brought immediately into the tent of Saul, the king of Israel, with the head of Goliath still in his hand. (laughs) So just picture that scene. And let's read it, verse 55, 1 Samuel 17. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, we'll inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Watch this, verse 18, or sorry, verse 1 of chapter 18. As soon as David finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. What's that all about? Apparently, Jonathan's there. Makes sense. He's the son of Saul. He's the next in line to the throne. And so when David's brought in, Jonathan hears David respond. He sees this this young man that's just won this great victory. And what I suggest to you, this description in verse 1 of chapter 18, is Jonathan finds a true friend. Something ignites in his heart. He has what C.S. Lewis describes in The Four Loves, this you two moment. Not the band U2, but you know, like U2. C.S. Lewis talks about how a real friendship forms, and maybe guys you'll relate to this, not when men sit across the table from each other and hold hands and look into each other's eyes. That's weird, right? Maybe you're into that. That's cool, but But C.S. Lewis says, no, 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 friendship happens when two men are shoulder to shoulder and they're looking at the same goal. They're looking maybe at the same enemy. They're in the same fight and they look over and they say, you too. Now, sometimes that can be something shallow. You know, you're out on the golf course and you find a buddy. Oh, you too? You love golf? Sweet. We should be friends. But this is something a lot deeper than that. This wasn't about football or fishing. This wasn't about having the same hobbies. This was about the same kinds of shared hopes and dreams, the same faith in God. This is about bonds that are formed through adversity because what it says here in 18 verse 1, these two men in an instant were knit together at the soul level. Just before we go any further, again, don't raise your hands. You don't have to say anything out loud. Do you have friends like that? Do you have a friend like that? You could say, man, we're knit together at the soul level. What does that even mean? 
What, what is that kind of friendship even made of? And there's three things that I want to kind of draw out from the rest of this story with David and Jonathan um, that comes from this kind of friendship. And I think, I think, guys, what I would love to offer this to you as is a vision for something significant in our lives. If the antidote to discouragement is having men in our lives, true friendships that go deeper than surface things, men that, that know us, that speak into our lives, man, what, what, is that, what does that even look like? And the, the first thing I want to uh, offer to you that comes from the friendship of David and Jonathan is unselfish love. I think Matt mentioned this in, in his sermon how, you know, a lot of times when we think of friendship, we're, we're looking at it, well, what do I get out of this? But I think the mark of the kind of friendship that David and Jonathan had, it was marked by this, this unselfish love. Where do I see that? Well, let's read again verse 1 and, and then read what comes after that to verse 4. As soon as David finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, took David, wouldn't let him return to his father's house. But then watch this verse 3. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, gave it to David. Make a note, that was a royal robe. Jonathan gave David his armor, his sword even, and his bow and his belt. What's going on here? What's so interesting is that Saul, from this point on, is going to begin to seethe with jealousy towards David because in the aftermath of the victory over the Philistines, David would return and the people in Jerusalem would begin to sing, oh, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousands. And so Saul's jealous and, as a friend of mine likes to say, butthurt about the fact that <laughs> David has a lot more fame and acclaim than him in that moment. But not Jonathan. I look at that and it amazes me because if anybody should have been jealous, if anybody should have felt threatened, it wasn't Saul, it was Jonathan. Because David has already proven, he's already demonstrated, or actually he's going to go on to demonstrate and prove, he's not there to usurp Saul. He's, he's content waiting for God's timing. But David's been anointed king, and he's going to succeed Saul. Saul, in that sense, if you would, is, is safe in his rule, but David is more of a threat to Jonathan, and yet Jonathan is the one that, that takes the emblems of his succession to the throne, his robe, his sword, his armor, and he gives them to David. It, it's, it's a sign of, of, of Jonathan saying, David, I support you. I support God's calling on your life. I'm here for you. I've got your back. How unselfish is the kind of love that Jonathan's demonstrating in this? And, and here's the thing, guys. As we go through, there, there's just three things. That's the first one, unselfish love in this kind of real masculine friendship, true brotherhood demonstrated in the life of Jonathan and David. It's really easy to listen to these things and maybe even fall into that trap that Matt was talking about in the last session, discouragement. 
We think, oh, I don't, I don't have any friends like that. But maybe, maybe what we could do in this session is ask the Holy Spirit to help us consider how we could be a friend like that. Not complain or fall into the trap or the pit of self-pity that I don't have a friend like that, but Lord, who am I a friend like that to? Because there's the potential for a bond, a friendship, not, not one that you would sit around and wait for someone else to initiate in your life, but, but one that you could initiate. And I love, I love what Nate said in his, se- in his session that, that men who live like this, men who live like this vision or, or live with this vision, they are a blessing, but they are also blessed. It's a blessing to live this way. It's a blessing to be this kind of friend. Not just to the people you're befriending, but that friendship will become a blessing in your life. So I think the first thing that we see uh, with David and Jonathan is this, this unselfish love. And the next thing we see is this deep Loyalty. Turn over to uh, 1 Samuel 19, the, the next chapter. Deep loyalty. Because Saul does become jealous. And maybe you know the story. He starts trying to kill David, right? He has this kind of evil spirit that's tormenting him. And the only thing that seems to soothe it is David coming and playing his music. But, but Saul just kind of lashes out in this rage. And, and he's growing more and more jealous over David. But listen to what what Jonathan says to his father at great risk to himself. In 1 Samuel 19, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, this is verse 1, to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, remember, who has the most to lose, who should feel the most threatened by David, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand before my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And so Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. And he said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David because he's not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you, for he took his life in his hand and struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced, so why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And it says, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and he swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. I love this picture of Jonathan going to bat for his friend David. Man, does he have his back, and is this an example of deep loyalty? It goes on, uh, look over at 1 Samuel chapter 20. In verse 13, as the story continues to develop, Jonathan kind of sees that maybe Maybe he doesn't have a whole lot longer to live. He doesn't know how the Lord's going to work this out, but he knows that David is the next man from God's perspective. And so look at what he says in 1 Samuel 20, verse 13 to David. Should it please my father to do you harm, 
The Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it and send you away that you may go into safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. What's Jonathan saying? He's saying, David, I'm willing to put my life on the line because that's, that's going to be seen as a traitorous act to my father, the king, if I warn you about his plots. But, but look at the loyalty that Jonathan has to his friend David. He's got his back, and he goes on to say, verse 15, and do not cut off your own steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. That's, that's why I say I think Jonathan kind of gets the sense like, I'm not sure what's going on. The handwriting kind of seems to be on the wall, but David, I want you to know I've got your back. And when I'm gone, however that goes down, would you return this loyalty, this kindness that I've shown you? And if you know the story of David, do you know the, the beautiful fulfillment of this kind of commitment and loyalty on David's part back to the house of Jonathan? When David takes the throne and the family of Saul is being rounded up and put to death because that's what you did in those days when there was a, a change of power. It was too much of a threat to, to leave the previous reigning family around. They might you know, stir up some kind of uh, you know, rebellion or whatever. And so they were just wiped out or exiled at least. And so Saul's family is being rounded up. But David remembers his promise to Jonathan and he preserves one of Jonathan's descendants named Mephibosheth. It's an incredible story. But there, there is in this friendship between these two men this, this deep loyalty. And I love this quote from Stu Weber in his book, Tender Warrior. He says, a man-to-man -man friendship says... I will never walk out on you. Barring unrepentant sin against God, you'll never be able to do anything that would repulse me or break our fellowship. I hope you guys can feel the power of what Stu Weber's saying there because I would guess that all of us could point to the men that have walked out of our lives, not kept their commitments. Maybe we've been those men in some relationships, and so we know the cost, the significance, the sacrifice, but therefore we also know the power of when you find a man who has this kind of loyalty, especially a friend, that says through all the years and all the seasons of lives and all the ups and downs and all the challenges, I'm not going anywhere. I love to think about this kind of friendship in a simple phrase of finding men that love you enough to have your back no matter what, but also who will get in your face when you need it. Do you have men like this in your life? Do you have friends like this? Not just buddies you can surf with or you know, do fantasy football with or whatever. That's all cool. But does it go deeper than that? Is there this kind of, of unselfish love and deep loyalty? And, and the last thing I want to just see from this story is the, the real kind of transparency in the lives of David and Jonathan. Turn to the end of chapter 20 where we're reading here. And look at verse 41. And, and maybe just to set up the story, the, the plot 
of Saul wanting to kill David has just come to a fever pitch, and so it's on, man. David is not safe to be anywhere in the vicinity anymore. And so, so he's trying to figure out, you know, can I be here or not? And Jonathan's kind of, you know, spying it out. He's going to figure it out. And they hatch this plan where Jonathan's going to go out in the field and just act like he's shooting arrows, doing some target practice. And as he shoots out the arrows, David's going to be hiding kind of by these rocks in the area. And Jonathan's going to send his servant out to retrieve the arrows. And here's the signal. If I tell my servant, hey, stop, the arrows are right there, pick them up, then David, you know it's safe and you can come. But if I tell my servant, hey, keep going, the arrows are further beyond, then David, you got to get out of here because my dad's commitment to kill you is real. And if you know the story, Jonathan shoots the arrows, he sends his servant out, and he, he calls out, no doubt with a broken heart, the signal for David to move on. And then he sends the servant back. He says, hey, take my bow, take the arrows, get home quick. And he goes and finds David in his hiding spot. And the, these are two friends that are knit together at the soul level, saying what they probably know is their final goodbye. They don't see a way to see each other again. Watch this scene, verse 41. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Now, what do you find in this kind of soul-level friendship? Unselfish love, deep loyalty, and real transparency. Here's two warriors weeping and kissing each other. Now, you want to know what makes me really angry? People try to take this scene and say, oh, see, they were gay. For real, people try to interpret this passage that way to pervert a godly and pure and powerful friendship. That's not what's being described here. But I think what is being described is probably uncomfortable to a lot of guys like us. Well, that sounds weird. That, that seems awkward. Because I think in the culture and in the time that we live, we don't, we don't necessarily know or it's not, not as familiar for us to walk in the depth of this kind of friendship. Now, you know, Probably the kissing thing was more part of the Middle Eastern culture, and it, it's not what we're thinking. But even the weeping, again, these are, these are seasoned warriors, men of victory, not afraid to show their emotions in this moment. Not feeling like they got to keep it all together or, or, you know, keep a stiff upper lip or be strong or whatever. They're just, man, their hearts are wide open to each other and everything's visible. In his book, uh, Am I Afraid or Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am, John Powell gives a, a really cool breakdown of what this kind of transparency looks like. He says that men enter into friendship and communication with each other at, at five different levels. The top level is cliché. You know, this is when men get together and they talk about the weather and they talk about the sports and did you see the Niners game? Yeah, that was awful, blah, blah, blah. 
It's just cliche. There's no substance. And men that go a little further, they get maybe to the next layer where, where they, they share facts about their life. Well, this is what I did today, and this is what I'm up to now, and this is what I'm, you know, what I'm working on. A little deeper, a little more open, but still, still not much. The third level, as a man begins to get more transparent in his relationships, he starts to share his opinions. A little more risk now because maybe you'll share an opinion that someone doesn't agree with and you realize, like, ah, we're not on the same page on that. But it's still pretty guarded, still pretty protected. To really go deeper is to enter into a friendship with men where you can begin to share how you feel, what's going on inside of you, what's going on in your heart. You know what's interesting about men is it seems like one of the only emotions that we're willing to admit is anger. (laughs) Because anger is an emotion that, that you power up with. All the other emotions feel like weakness. You know, you won't catch a man saying very often, man, I'm sad. I'm hurt. Those are emotions too. And really, anger is often a secondary emotion that we use to cover what's really going on underneath. So when you find a guy that's lashing out in anger, ask him. If he's a friend, dig into this kind of level of friendship. Hey, man, what's, what's really going on with you? Your reaction doesn't fit with the situation. Well, I'm, I'm mad. I'm frustrated. What's really going on, though? And man, I think of how powerful it would be if we as men could learn to open up at that level. With the right people, not, not with anybody and everybody, but with the right people that we're walking with that are in our lives until we can get to that, that final, that deep, deep layer of transparency where we're letting people see all the way in past these other layers to, I think how I describe transparency, guys, and vulnerability, that, that final layer is transparency is I'll let you see. Vulnerability is I'll let you speak in. And so what I watch a lot of times, and, and I do it too, I get with guys and, and I'll unload, I'll unpack, I'll say, oh, yeah, here's what I'm struggling with, here's what I'm feeling, blah, 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 and that's it, I feel better, got it off my, off my chest or whatever. If you want to talk about vulnerability, unpack some real things with some guys and then say, hey guys, I'd love for you to speak into my life right now and tell me what you see honestly. Maybe they'll say, you know what I see? You're being a jerk. You're off, man. But that takes vulnerability to invite someone else to speak into our lives, to live with that kind of transparency that people have a view into our lives. And I love this phrase. We did a men's retreat a couple of months ago, and this guy shared this phrase with us. You know what we need in real masculine friendships, we need no condemnation and high accountability. 
If you can find that combination, man, you have something powerful in your friendships and relationships. No condemnation. I'm going to show you everything. And and I know you're not going to leave. You're not going to turn away. You're not going to condemn me. But it's, it's also you're not going to sign off on this nonsense that I'm showing you. You're going to challenge me. You're going to exhort me. You're going to encourage me. That's accountability. And can I just say one, one quick thing? I know our, our time's pretty much gone here, but this is kind of a pet peeve of mine after 22 years in church ministry. When, when men come up to me and say, hey, Zach, I need you to keep me accountable. I always tell them, nope. I can't. I can't follow you around. I'm not watching you all the time. It's like they take the responsibility for their own walk in that area, whatever it is, and like, hey, I need you to manage this. No way. I'll walk in friendship with you. I'll walk in relationship with you. And, and there can be accountability, but you have to make yourself accountable to someone. It's like, you know, accounting. You show them the books. You can cook the books. You can tell them whatever you want. How would they know? But if you're going to be vulnerable, if you're going to be truthful, transparent, honest, then you show them the books. And someone that's really walking with you that has that view into your life, they can offer accountability in the context of relationship by saying, hey, you know what, you're sharing with me this week doesn't add up to what you were saying last week. But no one can keep you accountable. You have to be accountable if you really want that. So the thing about these layers, if you notice, the top three are things about what we know But the bottom two layers are things about who we are. That's where we begin to enter into the soul level. And that's where I think God has an opportunity when we take that step in faith, believing that this is a gift that God has given us as brothers in Christ to walk in greater depth of relationship. That's where I think we begin to see God knit our hearts together in a powerful way. So guys... Let me just say this as we close. You have the tools. You have the opportunities. You have this church. You have this incredible group of men. I've talked to a handful of you in this short time. And man, you've just opened up. Some of you shared your stories. Let me pray for things. Man, you've got all that you need. The Holy Spirit is here. You've got these life groups. You've got got everything set for you. but you got to take that step and, and walk in it, take hold of it, and ask God to work. You know, you could do all these things. You could come in and out of church on Sundays. You could come to conferences like this. You could go to a life group and never open up on this level and never see God knit your soul to another man in that way. But that's a gift that you're missing out on. And I know some of you have experienced this, and you could tell the testimonies of how powerful it is in your life. And I hope that all of us will experience this because it's a gift from the Lord. Let me just, I'll close with just saying this. If you're married, and this is kind of a challenge, guys. If you're married, your wife should be the most intimate friendship in your life. But you need to understand this. 
God created us as men with a need for companionship that cannot be exclusively met by a woman. For some of us, that's kind of the cop-out. Well, my wife's my best friend, so I don't have to open up to all these other guys. Translation, she's committed, so I'll take the risks with her. All this other stuff's too risky. (laughs) But God has designed us in such a way to experience true brotherhood, real masculine friendship, and it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing.